Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A bizarre quest for the fountain of youth. The operation was very gruesome and very noticeable. A ship that sailed from the pages of the Bible. He couldn't believe his eyes. He's able to see the remains of Noah's Ark. And an FBI informant with a devastating secret. That was a showstopper. That was the moment where I thought the case was history. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Located less than 15 miles north of San Francisco in Marin County, San Rafael, California is known for its well-preserved Victorian homes and famed Spanish-style mission. And in the heart of downtown sits an institution that celebrates the innovation and creativity of county residents, the Marin History Museum. Among its many treasures are a county sheriff's Winchester rifle from the 1920s, a 19th century jury box, and possessions of Louise Boyd, an early Arctic explorer. But one cracked leather artifact speaks to perhaps the area's most notorious landmark. It's about five pounds and approximately 12 inches long and six inches wide. And it has two handles and a zipper across the top. According to museum curator Holly Gallagher, this bag once belonged to a doctor who used his position of power to pursue shocking medical research. This story takes disturbing to a whole new level. Who owned this bag? And what bizarre experiments did he undertake at one of California's most infamous institutions? 1913, Marin County, California. Dr. Leo Stanley, a recent graduate of Cooper Medical College in San Francisco, arrives in this community to take up his first professional post, medical officer at San Quentin State Penitentiary. 
His work ethic and professionalism impress his superiors. And within months, he is promoted to chief surgeon. It's a job he approaches with aplomb. He's very dedicated to changing the men's lives, making it more comfortable for them so they could tolerate these long prison sentences. But Stanley is also interested in making a contribution to medicine outside the walls of San Quentin. And one subject fascinates the doctor above all else. What he really wants to do is figure out how to reverse the aging process. Influenced by the emerging field of endocrinology, the study of hormones' impact on the body, Stanley believes he can restore the vitality of aging men with an unusual treatment, surgically replacing their testicles with those of younger, more vigorous patients. And the prison provides the perfect conditions to test his radical theory. He had a population of men who were being executed. In 1918, Stanley puts a 72-year-old prisoner under the knife. The outcome is apparently stunning. The 72-year-old prison patient is feeling much younger, and he feels it's really working. Over the next three years, Stanley performs the cutting-edge procedure 21 times. And after each operation, he reports that almost all of his aging patients show remarkable signs of rejuvenation. But soon, he runs into a problem. His supply of testicles is running low. Only about 10 men were executed a year. So that gives you 20 testicles. And that's not nearly enough to keep up with demand. So Stanley turns to another source to supplement the human donations. Testicles from rams and other animals. But he administers these glands in a far different fashion. Rather than grafting the parts onto the patients, he chooses to grind it up and inject it straight into the abdomen of his patients. Stanley reports that this animal gland treatment is just as effective, although he continues the testicle graft surgery as well. But in May 1928, Stanley faces his greatest challenge yet. When the family of an executed murderer named Clarence Buck Kelly comes to claim his body, they are shocked to find the testicles have been removed without their permission. The operation was very gruesome and very noticeable. Outraged, they file a lawsuit against Stanley. The press seize upon the story and describe the perverse procedures in detail. The public can't believe what's going on behind the prison walls. So will this spell the end for Dr. Leo Stanley and his bizarre research? After conducting a review, the court finds in Stanley's favor, arguing that the experiments are justifiable. The damage to the inmate population was less than what the benefit could be to the public. And when the uproar dies down, Stanley continues his experiments on the San Quentin prisoners. By 1940, he has completed over 10,000 implantations. Over time, however, fellow researchers begin to question the efficacy of Stanley's treatments, and his once heralded procedures fall out of favor. But if Stanley's theories were suspect, how did his experiments produce such apparently stunning results? Some point to his data collection methods as one potential conflict. There was no control study. No, they took the word from the inmate. 
But even with untrustworthy sources, could there still be some truth to Stanley's findings? It seems the answer may be yes. Scientists have since linked higher levels of testosterone, the hormone found in testicles, to increased muscle mass, sharpened memory, and improved energy levels. It's not Stanley's promised fountain of youth, but it's still a source of vitality. Dr. Stanley was the start of the endocrine study of of where testosterone as a hormone has a major part in our bodies. Today, this medical bag, which once belonged to Dr. Leo Stanley and is now at the Marin History Museum, speaks not only of the bizarre experiments once practiced on prison inmates, but also of our ever-changing knowledge of the human body. Washington, D.C. The world-renowned Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History showcases a vast array of technological firsts. From a telegraph dating to the 1850s to Thomas Edison's early light bulb prototypes. But deep inside the museum's vaults is a commonplace object with ordinary packaging that belies its sweeping impact. It is cylindrical in shape, made of metal. It has a paper wrapper. And included on the paper wrapper are thin and thick lines. This simple tin of vegetables could be found on any grocery shelf in the country. But curator Hal Wallace knows this object helped usher in a consumer revolution. This has many, many ramifications, economically, politically, and socially. So how did this can of corn help shape the future of commerce? It's 1948. America's post-World War II economy is booming, with technology and advertising generating consumer demand at an astonishing rate. But there's a problem. Stores have no standardized way of tracking inventory. Most stores are an environment we wouldn't tolerate today. Lines are longer, product isn't on the shelves as much as we'd like. At the time, grocery stores used handwritten inventory lists or hole-punched cards to track their products. But this information is stored away from the product itself, leading to discrepancies between what stores think they have and what's actually on the shelves. It's an issue in desperate need of a solution. Fortunately, one man is about to receive the spark of inspiration. At the Drexel Institute of Technology in Philadelphia, engineering grad student Bernard Silver is walking through campus when he overhears an intriguing conversation. A businessman representing a chain of grocery stores is asking the college dean for help in automating their inventory process. The grocery store guy comes to the Drexel Institute and says, can you develop a way for us to automate the tracking of products? The dean declines the businessman's seemingly banal request. But the eavesdropping silver recognizes the amazing potential. Inventing a new system could be worth a fortune. Silver enlists the help of a fellow graduate student named N. Joseph Woodland. Joe Woodland was curious, creative, and informed. He knew about different technologies that were out there. The two immediately take to the lab. Their challenge was to create a system that could quickly and easily read a language off of a package. Within months, Woodland and Silver come up with a new tracking system that can be printed directly onto the product. 
they devise a circular label that can be read in any direction by a rudimentary machine. And it's printed with UV ink so that when viewed under UV lights, it easily stands out from other product information. But when Woodland and Silver test their prototype, it's a disaster. While the label may work on flat surfaces, the circular system fails on rounded products like cans. So their labels didn't work. Their labeling technology didn't work. And even if they could get it to work, the cost of UV equipment is prohibitive for the average grocery store. It seems their ambitious dream of modernizing American business has all but evaporated. So what will it take for Woodland and Silver to revolutionize retail? It's January 1949. Engineer Joseph Woodland is trying to invent a new system for manufacturers to keep track of their growing inventories. Many of Woodland's ideas are promising, but only result in failure. What he doesn't realize is that he need only scan his memory for inspiration to strike. On the verge of calling it quits, Woodland visits the beach in the hope that the fresh air will clear his mind. There, his thoughts turn to an old hobby. Woodland is sitting at the beach and he's thinking about Morse code. As a former Boy Scout, Woodland is well-versed in the code's dots and dashes. And he can't shake the notion that these symbols hold the answer to all his problems. Then, as his thoughts wander, he absentmindedly drags his fingers through the sand, leaving behind a series of straight lines. When he looks down at the imprint, inspiration suddenly strikes. And he looks at the ridges and says, Eureka, this is a solution for creating labels that can be read by machines. Seizing on the flash of genius, Woodland contacts Silver, and the two race back to their lab to reignite their quest. And before long, an elegant new system takes shape before their eyes. Much like the dots and dashes of Moore's code, their new label will encode information into lines of varying width, like the one Woodland drew in the sand. Instead of a circular label, it's now simplified as a rectangle with each bar's specific width representing a unique number. This is a visual code. The first set of numbers represents the manufacturer. The second set of numbers represents that particular manufacturer's product. And instead of using UV ink, they print the label in black and white. In October 1952, the scientists patent the revolutionary new system. Its official title is the Classifying Apparatus and Method. Unfortunately, Woodland and Silver's design is ahead of its time. The technology needed to scan each label is years away from being affordable enough for each mom-and-pop grocery store. They needed five or six really important innovations to occur. High-quality, affordable printing, integrated circuits, lasers. Tired of waiting for other industries to advance, the pair sells their patent for just $15,000. But on June 26, 1974, 20 years after the idea was born, Woodland and Silver's innovation finally makes its debut. Technology company IBM helps to perfect the system. And at a test supermarket in Troy, Ohio, a shopping basket filled with items like this can of corn are, for the first time, scanned with what is now called a barcode. 
the world will never be the same. From a few fleeting lines in the sand to this can of vegetables now on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, the barcode has claimed its place as one of the most enduring symbols of commerce in the modern world. Not far from the bustling halls of the Smithsonian stands one imposing institution that is strictly off-limits to the public, the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building. Behind these walls, the Bureau employs cutting-edge technology to keep America safe from crime. But according to FBI agent Robert Herndon, stored deep in its archives is one seemingly simple, outdated piece of tech. It's metal. About four inches wide, moving parts, wires extending from it. This is a reel-to-reel tape recorder, once used by the FBI to expose one of the greatest corporate cover-ups of the 20th century. November 5th, 1992, Decatur, Illinois. FBI agent Brian Shepard is working out of the local field office when he's contacted by a man who has incriminating information about one of the region's biggest employers, ADM. Short for Archer Daniels Midland, the company is a Fortune 500 agricultural giant renowned for stocking supermarket shelves around the world. But the caller, a man named Mark Whitaker, isn't just anyone. He's a high-ranking executive at the company. Mark Whitaker was the president of the bioproducts division at ADM. Intrigued, Shepard goes to Mark's home to talk, but he isn't prepared for what he hears next. Whitaker tells Shepard that ADM's shiny public image is nothing but a facade. He confides that the company is at the center of a worldwide price-fixing conspiracy. Price-fixing in layman terms is the manufacturers getting together and agreeing what price to charge and how much to make of the product. According to Whitaker, top ADM executives secretly meet with their competitors to artificially inflate the price of lysine, a key ingredient in animal feed. And when the cost of animal feed rises, so do consumer food prices around the world. ADM had a motto at the time, the competitor is our friend and the customer is the enemy. ADM alone has made an extra $80 million with this scheme. Shepard is stunned. If what Whitaker is saying is true, this could be one of the biggest corporate crimes in U.S. history. The FBI assembles a small task force, including Robert Herndon, to build a case against the company. But blowing this whistle will be no easy feat. To stand a chance, they'll need someone on the inside. Someone like Mark Whitaker. Without a high-level corporate executive it would have been nearly impossible for us to gather the evidence we needed. The agents sign Whitaker on as their lead informant, and their first order of business is to outfit him with the proper tools. We decided to give a tape recording device to Mark and make him record each and every conversation he had with people he said were involved in criminal activity. A recording device like the one stored at FBI headquarters. The agents hide the machine in Whitaker's briefcase, and instruct him to tape any mention of the price-fixing scheme. But it quickly becomes clear that Whitaker may not be suited for espionage. During one meeting, he almost exposes the entire mission. He opens up his briefcase, 
and opens up the secret compartment where we had the recording device hidden. Amazingly, no one notices the slip-up, but the mistake is too close for comfort. If the FBI is going to stand any chance of nailing ADM, Whitaker will need to improve his spycraft, and fast. In March of 1994, agents get word that numerous high-ranking executives from ADM are convening a big meeting to discuss the price-fixing scheme with other companies. It's the opportunity the FBI has been waiting for. But is Mark Whitaker up to the task? The FBI outfits Whitaker with a live wire so they can listen in. And as the meeting commences, the agents can't believe what they're hearing. One by one, the executives openly lay out exacting details of the criminal enterprise. I'm sitting there with my headphones listening to the conversation, and I'm giving a fist pump that we just nailed it. The Sting operation is a success. Mark Whitaker has almost single-handedly provided the FBI with an airtight case. But in August of 1995, only weeks before the FBI plans to go public with their investigation, Mark contacts the agents and has a shocking confession to make. So what is Mark Whitaker's dark secret? And will it sink this historic case? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the mid-1990s. With the help of an informant named Mark Whitaker... 
The FBI has built a stunning case of corporate fraud against agricultural giant ADM. But what the FBI doesn't realize is that Whitaker harbors a secret, one that will turn this case right on its head. On August 2nd, 1995, the FBI agents meet with a clearly nervous Mark Whitaker. Then the informant drops a bombshell. Mark confesses that for the past four years, he's been siphoning money away from ADM to a series of shell corporations. He says his own illegal scheme has netted him $9.5 million. Incredibly, he's been defrauding the very company he's been helping to investigate. In one fell swoop, Whitaker's credibility and the FBI's entire investigation is seemingly destroyed. That was a showstopper. That was the moment where I thought the case was history. When it was determined that Mark Whitaker had been embezzling money, he went from cooperator to defendant. Fortunately, although Whitaker can no longer testify, the 200 hours of recordings he made are still admissible in court. And in 1997, the prosecution finally gets the verdict they've been waiting for. Two top executives at ADM plead guilty to violating antitrust laws. In the end, they received three years in prison, and then the company itself received their record fine, $100 million. Mark Whitaker is found guilty of both price-fixing and embezzlement and receives a prison sentence of 10 and a half years, more than the executives he helped convict. In the wake of his trial, many wonder why Mark Whitaker approached the FBI in the first place. Some speculate that by helping to prove ADM's guilt, he hoped to minimize his own. Regardless of his motive, what is clear is that Whitaker's indelible mark on this historic case won't fade anytime soon. And this tape recorder, currently housed at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., harkens back to when one man took on a corporation and found himself on the wrong end of the law. Situated alongside the banks of the Little Miami River is enchanting and idyllic Loveland, Ohio, once a stop on the Underground Railroad. But hidden away on the edge of town stands an institution that celebrates a wholly different kind of ingenuity, a museum filled to the brim with objects of trickery and the unexplained, the Salon de Magie. This remarkable repository contains handcuffs once used by Harry Houdini, milky crystal balls, and early 20th century ventriloquist dummies. But three less prominent items seemingly involve no magic at all. You're seeing what seems to be an artist's view of what little girls would be fantasizing about. But spiritual intuitive Jessica Satera says that these seemingly innocent black and white photographs once ignited a battle between believers and skeptics. The contact is what it comes down to. Human beings in contact with supernatural beings. What exactly is captured in these ethereal photographs? And how did these intriguing images take center stage in a high-profile mystical inquiry? July 1917, Cottingley, England. On a quiet summer afternoon, 16-year-old Elsie Wright and her 9-year-old cousin Frances are playing in the creek behind the family property. But when the girls return home, 
Their angry mothers demand to know why they got their clothes soaking wet. The girls give a surprising answer. They claim they saw little winged beings. And that's why they were playing in the water. The grown-ups laugh off the childish declaration. But the girls are determined to be taken seriously and approach Elsie's father, an amateur photographer, for a favor. They felt that maybe they could prove it if they could borrow his camera. With the equipment in hand, the girls scurry back to the woods on a mission. A short while later, they return with a film plate to develop. And when the image begins to appear, Arthur Wright cannot believe his eyes. On the print is a picture of Francis sitting there with a bunch of fairies, and she's looking right into the camera. Wright's immediate reaction is to laugh it off as a prank. But a little over a month later, the girls bring him a second plate to develop. It reveals an equally astonishing image, this time of Elsie with a gnome. A highly skeptical Mr. Wright calls his wife, Polly, to look at the prints copies of which are now on display at the Salon de Magie. Polly is overcome with excitement. Mrs. Wright's feelings about it were very different from her husband's. She was a believer in the supernatural. In fact, like many people of her time, Polly Wright believes in the possibility of a life beyond death and nature spirits here on Earth. And she regularly attends meetings with fellow believers at the Theosophical Society. Images of fairies seem to offer proof of the group's convictions. Then, in 1920, word of these remarkable images reaches one of the most prominent authors of the day, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, famed creator of Sherlock Holmes. But Conan Doyle is also a spiritualist, and much like Polly Wright, he welcomes the photographs as evidence of a world beyond physical reality. This is something he's been waiting for for a long time. Any kind of proof, he wants a piece of that. In fact, Conan Doyle has recently been commissioned to write a story about the existence of fairies for the magazine The Strand. So he asked Gardner, can you give me copies of those pictures to use in my story? But the scrupulous Conan Doyle is wary of hoaxes. So before he publishes the photographs, he insists on further confirmation of their authenticity. So what will Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's inquiry reveal? It's August 1920 in England. The celebrated writer and spiritualist Arthur Conan Doyle has encountered something extraordinary. A set of photographs taken by two young cousins that seem to depict real live fairies. So did these girls actually capture fairies on film? To investigate, Conan Doyle dispatches his friend and fellow spiritualist, Edward Gardner, to personally interview Elsie Wright and her cousin. He talked to the girls. They seemed nice. They didn't seem deceptive in any way. But Gardner has a request. What Mr. Gardner decides to do is to give these girls cameras and some film and some time to tell them to go take more pictures. After Elsie and Francis produce three more images of winged creatures, Gardner is absolutely convinced of the veracity of their supernatural experience. For Conan Doyle, this is the added assurance he needs. 
In December 1920, he publishes the first two photos in Strand magazine, arguing passionately that they are real. He wanted to believe because that's the energy he's put his whole life into. But not everyone agrees. When the article comes out, skeptics mock the renowned author, claiming that the images are nothing more than child's play, merely paper cutouts somehow suspended in the frame. Some of the images of the fairies in comparison to the people in the photos with them were a little bit too opaque. And they didn't have dimension, they were flat. But despite the controversy, Conan Doyle stands by his story. The photographers, though, tire of the fairy hype. The girls stopped taking fairy pictures. They both married and went on about their lives. But for decades, Elsie and Francis maintain that they really had seen fairies in Cottingley. That is, until 1983. 65 years after the photos were taken, Elsie and Francis shine new light on the story. They did admit that they were faked. They say they feel ashamed to have let the hoax go on so long. But how did they do it? She said that they would draw them or cut them out of magazines and position them on little hat pins and then stick them down into the soil to make it look like they were floating on top of the ground. Today, the Cottingley Ferry photographs continue to capture the imagination of visitors to the Salon de Magie. A reminder that even the most innocent images are sometimes not what they seem. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is a city of firsts. It was home to the first Congress, the first Mint, and the country's first museum, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. This venerable institution houses elaborate marble statues and gilded paintings of mythical and monumental figures. But amidst these masterpieces is one artifact whose central figure is decidedly more salt of the earth. When you first encounter this object, you might notice the tools of a blacksmith shop or a ruddy, vigorous man standing at a forge. According to curator Anna Marley, this eight-foot-high oil painting reveals the story of a brazen offense that stunned the nation. This painting is linked to the first major heist in the United States. So who is the man depicted in this portrait? And what secret does it reveal about a shameful injustice tied to one of history's most infamous crimes? It's summer in 1798. The city of Philadelphia is the financial capital of the nation. And one of the town's historic structures, Carpenter's Hall, is being transformed into the Bank of Pennsylvania. Originally founded to fund the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, the bank is now a critical piece of the newly formed United States. Among the many workers who toil on the building's renovation is a highly skilled locksmith named Pat Lyon. Pat Lyon was hired to design all the locks for the new state-of-the-art Bank of Pennsylvania because his locks couldn't be broken. Lyon forges the locks and keys to the bank's ironclad vault doors. And by mid-August, funds are transferred into the newly opened structure. But it isn't long before this so-called secure facility is proven to be anything but. One day, bank officials noticed that a very large sum of money 
was missing from the bank. More than $160,000 have inexplicably disappeared. But this is more than just any theft. It is the first reported bank robbery in U.S. history. Desperate to restore faith in the banking system, authorities launch an investigation. And they're shocked by what they discover. No one had broken the locks. No one had broken the windows. It looked like somebody had walked in and taken out the money with a key. Police interview the bank's employees. And from all accounts, one suspect seems to stand out. The man who made the locks, Pat Lyon. Police theorized that Pat Lyon must have made himself an extra key so that he could go back and perpetrate the crime. Yet when authorities set out to question Lyon, he's nowhere to be found. So is this once esteemed blacksmith the man behind this daring heist? It's 1798 in Philadelphia, when authorities discover a massive sum of cash missing from the Bank of Pennsylvania, they turn to the man who installed the vault's brand new ironclad doors, respected blacksmith, Pat Lyon. But Lyon's nowhere to be found. So did the blacksmith take the money and run? In the midst of this investigation, an unexpected figure comes forward. It's none other than Pat Lyon. The locksmith claims that he left the city to avoid a yellow fever epidemic and has returned to claim his innocence. But with the evidence seemingly pointing to the locksmith, authorities arrest Lyon. He is promptly thrown into the Walnut Street Jail. Then, as Lyon remains in custody, investigators receive a surprising tip from bankers throughout the city. A little-known man named Isaac Davis has recently deposited large sums of money in their institutions. And the financiers are curious about the source of the stranger's impressive fortune. This begins to raise some suspicions because Philadelphia, while it's a very large city for the time, you pretty much knew who the wealthy people were in town. Acting on the tip, authorities add up the deposits made by Davis and come across a familiar sum. Davis had deposited the exact amount that had been taken from the Bank of Pennsylvania. Investigators immediately bring Davis in for questioning. And when asked about the deposits, the suspect makes a shocking confession. He admits that he stole the money from the Bank of Pennsylvania. Davis explains that he had observed the building's renovations and collaborating with one of the bank's porters had orchestrated the crime. The two had secretly shadowed the esteemed locksmith, Pat Lyon. They were probably watching his every move so that they could copy his locks, make the keys, and then stole the money after Pat Lyon left town. In spite of the confession, the two perpetrators are never convicted. The accomplice died of yellow fever shortly after the heist, and Davis avoids punishment when he returns the ill-gotten gains. The only man ever to spend time behind bars for the infamous crime is Pat Lyon. And though the wrongfully jailed locksmith is eventually released, he struggles to restore his good name. This really damaged his reputation. And it was years before he could get a job creating locks. Even after reestablishing his career, Lyon never forgets the injustice he had suffered. 
and in 1826, he commissions a painting that becomes a testament to his ordeal. Pat Lyon at the Forge by Philadelphia artist John Nagel depicts the locksmith as a working man in his prime, standing in front of the symbol of his wrongful incarceration. Pat Lyon wanted the Walnut Street Jail in the background of the painting to show the place where he had been unjustly imprisoned. And today, this grand canvas, housed in the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, is a striking symbol of an innocent man swept up in an historic heist. Lewisburg, Tennessee. This small agricultural community was settled in the late 18th century by Revolutionary War veterans and took its name from the famous frontiersman and explorer, Meriwether Lewis. But on the outskirts of town is an institution that celebrates another bold adventure, the Wyatt Archaeological Museum, dedicated to the achievements of archaeologist Ron Wyatt. Its collection includes artifacts from ancient civilizations, including an olive press and an assortment of clay pots from Israel. But among the utensils of everyday life is one item that is anything but typical. This artifact is about 16 inches long, it's about 9 inches wide, and it's brown in color, and it's hard like a rock. Richard Reeves, president of Wyatt Archaeological Research, believes this fossilized object is evidence of an incident of biblical proportions. Just to think, I may be holding a piece of one of the most significant events in Earth's history. How is this artifact connected to one of the world's most enduring mysteries? 1960, Nashville, Tennessee. Amateur archaeologist Ron Wyatt is thumbing through the September 5th issue of Life magazine when an article grabs his attention. He saw a picture with a caption that said Noah's Ark with a question mark. As he reads the story, Wyatt learns that a mysterious formation was spotted in the mountains of eastern Turkey. An aerial photograph reveals what appears to be a boat-shaped object buried beneath the earth. Wyatt is astonished by the discovery and feels this could truly be the ancient vessel from one of the Bible's most famous stories. It's very exciting to think that it could be the remains of Noah's Ark. According to the book of Genesis, God warned Noah about a catastrophic flood, instructing him to build a giant boat to save his family and two of every creature on Earth. The story of this epic flood is thought by some to be based on an historic event where rising sea levels submerged huge portions of Turkey. This is where Noah's Ark is said to have come to rest when the water receded. We do know from the biblical account that it landed in the mountains of Ararat, which is that whole mountainous region over in eastern Turkey. So is this formation physical proof of the legendary tale? Some people say that this is not the remains of Noah's Ark, that it's a natural object. But Wyatt is convinced otherwise and becomes obsessed with proving that this is in fact the biblical boat. Finally, in 1979, he is able to finance a trip to Turkey. And after a long journey through the rugged mountains, Wyatt beholds this incredible spectacle for himself. He couldn't believe his eyes. Ron was able to see what he believed to be the remains of Noah's Ark. Wyatt thinks he sees the outline of a ship's hull. 
And when he takes measurements of the entire site, the results amaze him. The Bible says that Noah's Ark was 300 cubits in length, or about 515 feet. And the site measures out exactly 300 of those cubits in length. Wyatt releases the astonishing findings. But members of the scientific community are quick to decry his claims, insisting that the rock formation is the natural result of mud flows. But Wyatt is about to unearth something that will shock even his fiercest critics. He turns to subsurface radar equipment to map out the location. As Wyatt carefully goes over the site, he gets a reading on the radar indicating an unidentified object very close to the surface. He digs up what appears to be a chunk of rock. But on closer inspection, Wyatt is convinced that it is fossilized wood. So is this archaeological find a genuine piece of the famed Noah's Ark? It's 1960. Aerial photographs of a mountain range in Turkey have revealed what seems to be an unusual boat-like formation. Scientists dismiss it as an illusion of nature, but archaeologist Ron Wyatt is convinced that these are the remains of a legendary vessel, Noah's Ark. But can Wyatt make his theory float? Wyatt sends the sample out for testing, and when the results come back, he's amazed at what they reveal. Upon analysis, it appeared to have a very high organic carbon content. So at that point, Ron knew it had to be a piece of wood that had fossilized or petrified. As wood decays underground, mineral deposits replace the plant's organic matter, and a stone mold forms in its place. Ron Wyatt thinks that the same process has transformed this artifact, now on display at the museum that bears his name. And he believes that it's evidence of the final resting place of Noah's Ark. In light of this claim, authorities grant the site special historic significance. The Turkish government declared it a national treasure and a national park and built a visitor center at the site. But despite this weighty endorsement, cynics continue to voice skepticism that the formation is in fact man-made. Unfortunately, Wyatt never gets the chance to convince them otherwise. In 1991, political unrest in the region makes the site too dangerous for foreigners. So there's more work that needs to be done, but at this point in time, we've not been able to do that. But this object on display at the Wyatt Museum continues to stir timeless fascination with the truth behind this ancient ark. From fairy tale fraud to an ingenious invention, a white collar conspiracy to an historic heist. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.